HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Miguel Liel, Chief Marketing Officer at Cholula and former CMO at a few brands you may have heard of, like Kettle Chips and Kind. Miguel has spent his career in marketing, growing businesses through innovation, partnerships, communications, and smart management. As many of you know, Cholula just sold to McCormick for, I think it was $800 million under Miguel's leadership. So this is a great way to kick off another season of In the Sauce. Welcome, Miguel. Hi, Ali. Thank you for having me. I am thrilled to be having you. I think I've been bragging a little bit over the last couple of weeks that you're coming on the show. I'm not usually like a bragger, but I've definitely been like, guess who's coming on in the sauce? So um, so I'm really, really psyched to, uh, to have you on. Well, that's a relief because I've been doing the same. <laughs> uh, I'm sure. Um, so, you know, you told me that you listened uh, to some episodes. So, you know how we start off. It's a little bit about you. Um, I believe you grew up in Mexico. I'm kind of always wondering if you were, you know, people, especially in marketing, who have like the marketing bug. I always kind of wonder. Were you a kid who loved the grocery store? Were you a kid who loved food? You know, what did you what did you want to be, and what did you picture you know picture yourself as as a grown up? Yeah, no, I mean, growing up, I was a little bit of both. So you're right. I, I grew up in Monterrey, Mexico, but my family was from a border town called Nuevo Laredo, which is on the other side of the border from Laredo, Texas. Mm. And uh, I remember as a kid, the favorite part of my childhood was actually, you know, going to Laredo or Nuevo Laredo to visit my great grandma 
and sneaking into the Walmart naked <laughs> on the Texas side to pick up, you know, my favorite cereals and and also items that we didn't have in Mexico. Right. You know, like uh, I don't know, peanut butter, fish sticks, even bagel bites. You know. Right. And it was such a hard thing to. You know, I remember my mom would give us like $10 and I would spend two hours just going through the store. Yeah. Trying try to find that. But uh, I also remember really loving ads probably a little bit later mm-hmm. in life, more as I was becoming a teenager and specifically copy. You know, I love yeah. great pieces of copy back, you know, in the late 70s and early mm-hmm. 80s, still do. And uh, just have always had a lot of respect for for copywriters and, and, and the people that can write great pieces of copy. Yeah, and I think it's such an interesting note to bring up. I love good copy too. And it just, you know, when it's when it hits just right and it's super pithy, it just it just works. And it's one of the things that I think no matter how the medium has changed over the years you know, whatever, maybe it's not TV and a billboard anymore. Maybe it's Instagram, you know, and a TikTok. Um, But there's no replacing good copy. You know, it hasn't been, it will always have its place, I think, in sort of the getting getting a good message across and kind of resonating with people in a way that, that hooks them, you know? Yeah, I think, you know, there are a lot of parallels to that, like great, pieces of literature. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter if you like, you know, reading books or reading from a Kindle or reading mm-hmm. from an iPad or doing audiobooks, you know, East of Eden is always going to be East of Eden. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> I, I think, uh, you know, great copy works the same way. Yeah. And I love the fact also that you, the first thing you said was cereal. Cause I think for a lot of us growing up, what, our exposure to like brand and marketing. And by the way, I'm not condoning like marketing sugar cereals to children, but we, the different personalities of the different, you know, it was rice or corn was sugar and some form of color, right? (laughs) And yet every one of them had this like identity and connection and, you know, oops. Um, I think it just... It's one of those things that really like hooked me as a kid, I think, to, uh, you know, to brand. Yeah. And, and for me, it was that, but also it was being able to see both sides of the border and see that in Mexico we had four options. And then, you know, I would just cross to the other side and go to the big HEB in Laredo and be able mm-hmm. to have... 200 different cereals. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think, you know, that just showed me as a kid the possibilities of what, you know, could be done with, like you mentioned, something so simple as, as those formulas. Yeah. Amazing. But you, from my understanding, you did not necessarily want to be in marketing when you went to college and consequently went to business school. Um, you wanted to be a Banker? Is yeah, that I know. Yeah. I feel uh, <laughs> I don't know if I should be a little bit ashamed of that or not. <laughs> but I am, I am a numbers person. I think, you know, especially now that I have kids and, 
you know, growing up, you know, you think everybody thinks the same way as you. And mm -hmm. I think with age, you realize the beauty that all of us have different brains. Yeah. But, um, I studied engineering. I got my MBA from a financial school. Uh, I think that's why I have such an appreciation for things like music and copy because I have so much respect for the people that can do that because mm. I couldn't write, you know, to save my life. Right. And, uh, but I can, you know, I feel very comfortable with, with numbers. And uh, I think, you know, uh, you know, I fell in love with the first marketing class that I had in business school. It was taught by a professor that had a master's in, in electrical engineering. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I realized that marketing, you know, could be numbers as well. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to get into that a little bit because I think one of the reasons why I'm so thrilled that you're on is that the definition of marketing um, has almost gotten a little, I don't know, something's happened over the last couple of years, I think, especially with sort of digitally native brands, because so much of marketing in at least what we're doing, you know, in grocery stores isn't about the catchy copy, it's about growth management and it's about promotion and placement and, you know, the four P's, um, which a lot of it is numbers. It's not, you know, I think, I think brand and identity are different from marketing. Um, and I like that you're kind of giving this sort of like bigger picture um, to it all, which, which we will, gonna, you know, we're going to get into because I have a lot of fun questions coming up. <laughs> um, but I know you started your own company. Um, you ended up selling it. And then you went to work. Um, you started your sort of big CPG um, career. And, and I'm just kind of curious about the transition from having your own company to going to work for, I think it was Frito-Lay. Yeah. So, you know, when, when I, after business school, where I met my wife, you know, we got married and she was the main breadwinner in our family. And I started a company with a couple of partners that ended up, you know, growing faster. I think that we anticipated when mm -hmm. we sold, we had over a hundred million dollars in revenue and over 300 wow. employees and probably the biggest blessing in selling the company, and I was, you know, in my mid to late 20s, mm -hmm. was that I signed a non-compete. And as funny as it sounds, mm -hmm. the non-compete prohibited me from working into the paper industry. Right. And now, you know, my family and I are big fans of The Office, the TV yeah. show. Yeah, Dunder Mifflin, right. That's <laughs> what I'm picturing. <laughs> and every time that I watch it, I feel so lucky that I signed that non-compete. Uh, right. And uh, and pursued, you know, my uh, my passion for food and my passion for marketing, and uh, and yeah, because of that non-compete, I was able to get my first uh, marketing job as the ABM on Lace at Frito Lay, and uh, it was interesting going from, you know, your own company and 200 people reporting to you, mm -hmm. to being literally at the bottom of the hierarchy on a big marketing department. But, uh, you know, when you have your own company, you can't afford the talent that these right. companies had. So it just gave me a different appreciation. I think I was surrounded 
by so many talented people on, on that first job. And uh, some of them, you know, have become some of my closest friends and mentors, et cetera. So just a different kind of opportunity. Yeah. So I, before we get into, because I, I think I sent you a draft and I'm like, I want to go through Frito-Lay and then I want to go through Denon and then I want to go through Diamond and then Pop Secret and then Kettle. And I mean, like <laughs> you are, you your resume, it's like way bigger than a, you know, 50 minute interview. But before we get into kind of the nitty gritty of each kind of experience, the way that I would kind of... Um, and this is reductive, but you're, you're kind of a turnaround guy. Like, it seems to me like everywhere that you went, um, maybe not the first Frito-Lay job, but everywhere that you went, things were trending not in the right direction. You came in and things started trending in the very right direction. Um, is that kind of a fair assessment? And I know you want to be humble about it. Yeah, but... <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I can that. I've been very lucky. I don't think I can take all the credit, but I think as a marketer, it's good to like turnarounds because typically those are the opportunities that That's are the available. Opportunity. Yeah. So, when, yeah. Go ahead. No, no, you go on. Yeah. When, when I, I feel, or this is my, my thesis that when marketers do really well, they get promoted into CEO jobs. And when they don't do well, then jobs and opportunity become available. So it's, 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 I think you, you find a lot of, you know, great opportunities out there if you, if you are open to these turnaround situations. Right. And so very, very basically, um, if you came in, you know, to company A um, and they were like, hey, Miguel, you know, we need you to, to do your magic a little bit. Um, what would you say you spend the first three months kind of assessing and auditing? Like, what are the fundamentals that have you discovered um, that they're that they're all kind of doing something wrong, or that they're missing something that other companies are doing right? Like, in kind of diagnosing the issue, do you have any kind of very sort of overarching things that you go about in your sort of audit? Yeah. Um, you know, as a big picture, and I'm happy to dive in, you know, we could probably take the entire episode talking about right. this. But, you know, I, I, I always look at it like if the company has a, either a brand challenge or a business challenge. Okay, and, that's great. Uh, and I was just talking uh, to a friend of mine that, you know, she has like this amazing opportunity with, you know, really hot brand in the market and, and talking about the differences on those two challenges. I think, mm -hmm. you know, as it relates to my story, I think Kettle was a beautiful brand. It had a fantastic product, but it was kind of like trapped in a, in a crappy business. Mm -hmm. uh, kind, you know, it's probably the most beautiful brand in food, in my opinion, mm -hmm. but uh, the business needed to catch up with, with what I consider was the greatness of the brand. And, you know, I can, I can tell you more about that. Yeah. Cholula was exactly the opposite. Cholula was a great business and probably margin, you know, repeat rate and all the fundamentals of businesses, 
probably the best business I've ever been a part of. Right. But the brand had very low awareness and very low recall. So so the challenge was different. And I, when I assess opportunities, just, just knowing where you stand on the relationship between the brand and the business, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a smart place to begin. Yeah, no, that's actually, that's like, drop the mic. That was <laughs> great. <laughs> no, seriously. And it's funny because I... I really feel like there are, I, I can even at an early stage, like obviously we're at a completely different stage and a lot of the people that I'm interviewing and interacting with are at a completely different stage, but I've seen so many emerging brands with really killer brands and the business is kind of not, not great. And what, and it's kind of why I always tell people like, get your operations in order really early on. I mean, again, I'm not an expert, but because without that back, you know, end kind of functioning as well as it can, you don't have product. You don't have, you know, you can't fulfill or you, or you're, you know, you're constantly letting people down who are excited about the brand. Um, It's kind of like you need the right brain and the left brain to work together. Um, and I think that's just a a really beautiful, succinct way to put it. So we're going to take a little break. And then when we come back, we're going to start with Frito-Lay and we're going to go through every step of the way and you're going to share all of your wisdom with everyone. So we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. I'm back with Miguel Leal, Chief Marketing Officer at Cholula. Um, Okay, Frito-Lay. You started at the bottom of the totem pole, um, as you put it, and... Can you kind of reflect on that and and break it down into the big takeaways that you carried with you kind of into every different role? And what did you end up doing at Frito-Lay that that then led to the next step? Yeah, so when I I was very lucky not only to have had the opportunity to work with Freedom with those brands, but also at that particular time, uh, you know, it was just so stuck with talent. I am, you know, <laughs> as I reflect about the, all the ABMs and brand managers that were there, they were all today CEOs and, and CMOs, you know, in the industry. What is an ADM? An associate brand manager. Okay, it's basically, you pull the numbers and run the budget. It's the entry level. Got it. In, okay. in the marketing department. But... Uh, you know, Frito had this great culture that it was not on, not mm-hmm. only about developing your marketing skills, but also your leadership skills. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I remember one of the 
you know, VPs that took me under his wing, one of the things that I, that he explained to me that, uh, you know, he had learned was that there were only two types of people, mm-hmm. you know, at, uh, at, at Frito, but I now think it, uh, it applies everywhere. And uh, he would call it the ones everyone wants on their team and the ones no one wants on their team. <laughs> and, um, as easy as, you know, that sounds, you know, this was, I don't know, 15, you know, maybe 17 years ago. It's yeah. still today one of my most important values, not only to be the player that everybody wants on their team, mm-hmm. but also the best partner to the rest of the organization. I think, right. you know, when I start a new job, one of the first things I always ask is, how can marketing be a better partner to sales, to operations, to mm-hmm. finance? And, uh, and I learned that at, at Frito-Lay. Amazing. And like when you kind of think about, because Frito, I think, I think Frito-Lay, at least in my understanding, they, they're kind of known for having, for creating the best marketing people, you know, and those people, like you said, go out into the world and just do things really well. Why, what is it that they, aside from leadership, I mean, are there any sort of marketing fundamentals that are just, you know, repeated and repeated and repeated over and over that kind of create these marketing powerhouse people kind of disseminating into the, into the world? Yeah, I think it's, that's a great question. And I, I think it's a couple of things. Like I would say Frito, you know, has a great marketing organization, no question, and, and great billion dollar plus brands. But they also have a great sales organization. And the slice of marketing that you learn at Frito mm-hmm. is the slice of marketing that is very practical and is very commercial oriented. They, they are very strategic, but you don't waste a lot of time on the strategy. You, you really apply things. And the second thing is, is they empower you. You know, when I was there and again, you know, young in my career, they allowed me to, to run, you know, an idea that I had on, on, on locally grown lace. And this is, again, you know, 15 years ago, but to show mm-hmm. the farmers on the TV spot. And, and it was very kind of felt like a lot of responsibility to give to someone young in their career. Mm-hmm. But I think they are that kind of organizations when you can really take risk and do big things. And uh, it's, a, it's a great place, you know, to work, especially at the beginning of your career. So when you talk about sort of the practical and commercial part, does that kind of go back to you know, pricing and promotion and, and like, is that what you mean by practical and commercial? It's like, you can read my mind, Ali. Exactly. I love that. You know, (laughs) there is so much growth that comes from execution and getting the store right, as as Mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, and, you know, it's great to be able to, you know, have the opportunity again, left side and right side of the brain, Mm-hmm. run these big campaigns and have big budgets and work with such an incredible roster of agencies, but at the same time to, to make sure you're spending your time on the field, in the stores, everybody gets to do route rides for mm-hmm. at least a week on your first year and wake up at 4 a.m. and really mm-hmm. you know, put bags on the shelf. 
And uh, it's very hard to do the job if you don't understand the, the whole process, you right. know, from operations to sales to right. the pricing and promotions in the store. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Okay, so then you had, you went over to Denon um, and your um, exclamation points were fewer. I'll just say that about your experience there, but you're welcome to talk or not talk about it. And then um, you you launched shopper marketing. I that's kind of, that was one of the lines. And I'm just kind of curious. We don't have to get into why there were fewer exclamation points, but I would love to hear about what you launched there and how um, what you learned from that experience. Yeah, I think you know at Danone, uh, they gave me an opportunity to build a team from scratch, mm-hmm. which again was, was incredible. It was a new capability and, you know, I was able to hire people and, and it probably showed me, you know, the, the role that talent plays in, in transforming mm-hmm. brands and transforming culture. And, you know, later after I left and, and, and I thought about, about my time at Danone, I read this book, still one of my favorite books, called Creativity Inc. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. The, the story of Pixar. I'm not sure if yeah, I've heard into it. it. Yeah, but you know, Pixar launched like 14 consecutive films that debuted in the number one spot in the box office. Yeah, I think like the number two launched like two or three, and uh, and it was led by George Lucas, Steve Jobs, Bob Iger, some of mm-hmm. the you know most creative business leaders of our time. And the book is really, you know, if I distill it, it's all about the difference between a good idea and a good team. Mm. And a good team can make a bad idea great. Mm-hmm. And a bad team can make a good idea and don't execute it properly. Wow. So it just shows you the importance of, of, of building the team. And, and I have a lot, you know, to, to thank that opportunity because... You know, at the end of the day, in turnaround, most of, you know, what makes the change is the team building aspect of it. And and I think I had that opportunity to do it for the first time at Dan. Yeah. Um, speaking of team, do you um, do you have any, you know, top hiring? You know, do you always ask, you know, if you, what spirit animal would you be? Like, <laughs> do you have any things that are sort of like your uh, go-to hiring methods or big red flags or big, big green flags when you hire? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, hiring is important, but I think also assessing the talent that you get when, when you start on a new team and also onboarding new talent yeah. are, are mm-hmm. equally important. I, I would say building a team, you know, is, is, is probably, you know, what I'm the most proud of and, and what I consider the number one skill in, in turnaround. But, you know, you never bat a thousand on these things. And mm-hmm. uh, I think one of, you know, like the way that I think about it, it's always good to strike a balance between promoting internal team members, also bringing people that you've worked with before that you can already have a trust established with them, mm-hmm. but also bringing, you know, new points of view from the outside. And, 
you know, just talking to founders and, and people that are building teams, I like to over or give more value to, to people that have built something. I think it's probably because I come from an entrepreneurial background, mm -hmm. but there are, you know, things that you can teach, you know, like being hungry or being resourceful. Right. And uh, I try to focus a lot on those things. You know, yeah. if you do your job screening candidates, you're going to end up with, with a lot of people that have done and have great experience. But it's about those things that you just have as part of growing up uh, yeah. that, that I think, you know, are the ones that make the difference in the long run. I think that's really great advice. Um, Diamond. Okay, so this blew my mind. So you went to Diamond, and the blurb that you wrote for that was that you repositioned Diamond from a nut brand into a baking brand. That, I was, like, I literally had, like, little, like, zer, zer, like, coming out of my brain. Like, it, because I think of it as, you know, at this point, I don't know what, I, I, I mean, I really think of it as, like, you're, you're, you're using nuts to bake, <laughs> but I guess it was a snacking brand. I don't know. I mean, how did you, that reposition, right? The, um, I mean, changing the target consumer, how did you do that? How do you, you know, how do you take an almond and change who you're marketing to and change the position of that and the way people think of it? And it's just amazing. Yeah, I mean, I I think Diamond is just a fascinating brand. It's, mm -hmm. you know, over 100 years old. It's, you know, premium price. It really only competes with private labels. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's like a two-brand market. And, uh, you know, we had a great, you know, not only marketing team, but insights team on that business. And... Uh, and when you think about baking, and I am not a baker, I love to cook, but baking mm -hmm. for me is just, you know, like another language. Yeah. Baking takes hours and you're always nervous how things are going to turn mm -hmm. out when you take mm -hmm. them out of the oven. <laughs> and when you're actually doing for the holiday, you're actually competing with other bakers in your family or worst, in right. your extended family. Right. And, uh, and, and you know, when, when the stakes are that high... <laughs> You know, it's mm -hmm. really when you are willing to pay a premium. So, you know, we, we had a, you know, we were based in San Francisco. So across the street, we had this incredible agency, Duncan Shannon, that we partnered with. And mm -hmm. They were really able to bring that communication digitally and TV just in a, in a great way. But uh, it also allowed us to launch into new categories. So, you know, I think like one of the, ideas that came out from that insight was to develop not by crusts, which is one of the yeah. things that takes like the longest. And it was such a successful launch for the brand. And, and if we were a not brand, I don't think we would have ever right. thought of it that way. But once you go into these journeys and you get more intimate with the consumer, that's typically what really opens up the opportunities. So I think that's so fascinating, right? Because one of the things that we talk about all the time on our team is, you know, operations and sales and marketing are all, we are all together 
all the time where, you know, there's still, it's still small. Um, you know, we're launching a new SKU in April and it's all hands on deck. Um, and everyone has context and everyone knows how if you poke, you know, the, the system over here, it's going to bulge out over here. You know, if the samples aren't ready, then the, you know, everything kind of works together. Um, and I just don't know how I'm nervous, frankly, that the bigger we get, the more we kind of lose that connection. But what's fascinating about what you just said is that like repositioning the brand and understanding yourself as a baking brand all of a sudden led to this wide open road of innovation opportunity that no one necessarily would have thought of before. And that's really fascinating, you know, like, cause it's not just about the marketing, it's about the entire business. And I guess one of my questions for you is how do you even go about, like, obviously Diamond had resources that uh, the people listening to this and our emerging brands we don't have, but how, how would you help an emerging brand get those insights? What are we looking for to help us figure out our position and to help us figure out that brand, you know, target? Yeah, I mean, not, I agree with you. I don't think everybody has the budget to be able to go out and do a A&U or a qualitative, mm -hmm. but now more than ever, insights are everywhere. I think insights are, you know, on, on social media listening. I think, you know, the first thing that I do when I'm going to work on a brand is mm -hmm. read the Amazon reviews. You'd be amazed of what you can learn from the consumers and they are free and just, just mm -hmm. reading them. I think the advantage that, that young companies have or smaller companies are twofold. I think in big companies, a lot of time, this consumer intimacy gets, you know, thrown to either someone, you know, you know, young in the organization, mm -hmm. or I see it a lot of time thrown out to a third party. Someone outsourced. Yeah. yeah. What, what small companies and, and Diamond, I would say we were more like medium. So for me, that was the sweet spot was, you know, getting close to the consumer, talking to the team in con customer service and, you know, listening to what are the complaints or what are, you know, what consumers are looking for. But the, the it cannot stay just there. You need to permeate it to the rest of the organization. So a great practice that I learned at Diamond that I've, you know, continued to practice even here in Cholula is to take those strategic business plan and run them by your co-packers, run them by your distributors mm -hmm. and make sure that everybody has the flight plan for the next two, three years of the organization but that you also create a place where dialogue can happen. Yeah. There have been so many great ideas that come from, from co-packers and distributors and, and, and partners on this journey that, uh, that I think you know, smaller companies might even have the advantage. That's such a good point. It's so funny that you mentioned that because you know, we spent, I would say, Courtney, Marissa and me, like the three sort of leadership team um, we spent, I would say, 20 hours in the last couple of weeks of 2020, kind of really honing in on our priorities for 2021, 
kind of why, you know, the big why uh, for each priority, how we would break down sort of roles and responsibilities for those priorities. And then, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say this, but we have an outsourced sales team, which doesn't feel outsourced. They're very much connected to us and they're, they're, they're really like a part of the team. But I was on the phone with her, you know, the, our sort of connection last week. And I realized that we hadn't shared that, that really big sort of gravitas priority document with them, like our sales team. And it was, I don't know what happened. It just was like, I was so focused on making sure that my internal team got it. Um, and of course they had lots of insights and lots to share. And then we took it to the broker and we we had a whole meeting with them about it and, you know, kept, kept defining it more and more. I think we get tunnel vision sometimes, especially founders. And I think um, we forget, you know, we forget that the co-packer is the perfect place to start with innovation ideas because they know what their capacities are and they know what their capabilities are. Um, and I don't know why that happens, but it's such a good point and it's, it's, it's important for us to remember. Yeah, well, don't feel bad. I, <laughs> that is such a common thing. But uh, I think the empowerment is once you unleash it, you know, there, there is so much upside from, from those conversations. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I'm like, who else can I talk through my priority plan with? Um, okay, then pop secret. So uh, Orville Redenbacher was like the popcorn for many, many years. You hop over to pop secret and all of a sudden you beat Orville Redenbacher. Um, I don't even know if like my kids would know Orville Redenbacher compared to Pop Secret at this point. I, I honestly don't. Um, so what you highlighted on that little blurb was partnership um, with Disney in particular. And I, I'd like to hear more about that. I was describing we are hiring right now, and I was describing sort of the brand partnerships piece of the puzzle, and they were not confused, but they were kind of like, well, how do you measure the return on that? And what makes, what makes a good partnership? And how do you assess whom to partner with? And I do know some brands that really don't like doing them. Um, I think they're really fun and I love the fact that they can be kind of across categories in a lot of ways. Um, but I'm curious on your thoughts about partnership in a, in a bigger picture sort of marketing arsenal. Yeah, no, I mean, we think the pop secret team, you know, that, that we have in that business probably pound by pound, you know, the, the best marketing team or one of the best that, that I've ever seen. And wow. what, what the team was able to, to uncover was just, you know, this whole move to streaming and content and, you know, generationally of watching, you know, something that you saw as a kid, you know, in a Star Wars, but now watching it with your kids as you become mm -hmm. a father and, uh, you know, when it comes to partnerships, I think, you know, the, the two things and probably kind, 
you know, taught me a lot about partnerships, was, uh, you know, always date up, you know. Yeah, so, if you can. They don't always it, want to date down. <laughs> yeah, but at least think about it, right? You know, when for Pop Secret to be able to be in a partnership with Disney, I mean, what what better content if you're talking about right. families at home with their kids that yeah. they had in their library. And, uh, and the second one is make sure it's part of your story. Sometimes mm-hmm. you have the opportunity to do, you know, a, a great partnership with someone, but it doesn't feel the rhetoric. And, and, and the most important decisions that you made is, is when you say no to things. To make mm-hmm. a partnership, you know, work, it requires a lot of work and uh, more than you typically think. So mm-hmm. if it's not part of your brand story, sometimes you're better off passing than not. Right. Oh, wow. Someone gave me, I have to find it, but someone just said a really, really good quote about like the, you know, there are a lot of quotes about like what you say no to is more important than what you say yes to, but it was just a really good one that, that you reminded me of. Okay. Now I want to get into what I believe is one of the smartest things I've, I've ever heard, <laughs> which is kettle. And Again, you redefined your consumer target. Um, you shifted up the marketing mix. Um, and I, I think it's interesting to go back to sort of what you said at the beginning about, you know, the brand and the business. But the the folklore is that basically you figured out this connection with people who ate kettle chips and people who drank craft beer. And you basically took that connection and just laser focused on it and kind of cleared everything in the side view and just went deep into this demographic of people who were craft beer people because there were a lot of them. That is sort of the um, urban legend of Miguel and what you did at Kettle. But I'd love to hear (laughs) <laughs> how you would explain what you learned there and how you sort of turn them around. Yeah, I mean, Kettle is just A, such a gem of a brand, but but B, probably the most fun I've ever had. I still can't yeah. believe they pay me to do that job. It was, but, still. but uh, you know, a lot of the founding team at Kettle was there when I came on board. Mm-hmm. We had killer, you know, product development, you know, operations, procurement, you know, you name it. I think what happened with Kettle and the reason it was declining back then was it, it lost through all the ownership changes. It lost a little bit of its way and it was targeting boomers with like TV spots on ESPN and major league playoffs. And they were doing promotions with like wine companies. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, again, I think that the killer insight, you know, we kept hearing about it over and over again on social media, on Amazon reviews, even in focus groups, we would bet like over under when someone will bring up craft beers. And, mm-hmm. and this is 10 years ago or more when, when craft beers were starting to boom. Right. You no, know, and and we had a very strong person on on insights, and you know she went out and brought us the data that uh, craft beer buyers over index, you know, three x 
with cattle higher than any other chips. And intuitively, it makes sense. If, if you care about the beer that you drink, where it comes from, how it tastes, you know, the process, the community, right. you probably also care about the chips. That caring doesn't stay in the beer aisle. Right. It probably stays with you to the rest of, of, of the team. So, you know, the fun thing is, you know, we were very lucky to hire you know, very talented professional from Red Bull that really understood field marketing and mm-hmm. and we were promoting, you know, cattle to young consumers across social field marketing. And my job was basically sponsoring the craft beer tent at music festivals at Coachella, <laughs> right. Bonnaroo, or uh, outside lands and uh, Austin City Limits. And can't believe I was getting paid to do that. It was such a dream job. Amazing. I, I just, the, the piece about insights is really, it keeps coming back, right? Like it's almost like what you did to turn these brands around, I'm going to oversimplify it, is they've, they, were, they were focused on the wrong people, it sounds like. And what you did was, I mean, obviously this is reductive again, but you listened you just started listening to who actually was using it and for what and why and what their concerns were and what they cared about. And then you just nudged the company back to them. I mean, is that just totally oversimplifying it? No, no. But I mean, I, I think, you know, this, this is not, you know, very complex. I, I think, you know, <laughs> understanding not not you know me as a former entrepreneur and hopefully you know future entrepreneur again mm-hmm. you know i think a lot of the of the mistakes that we make is we love our brands so much that we want to be all things to all people mm-hmm. and the discipline that it requires to be humble enough to understand you know where do you need to start first and it's it's so important especially on a young brand or on a turnaround to to nail that and put the time just like you did on the break with uh, with with Courtney and with Marisa mm-hmm. on on really and and having a point of view is like 80% of the way and you know as you get closer to the consumer being open to maybe pivoting one way or another yeah. i think just making sure that you don't always feel like you have all the answers. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, gets you a really long way in, in our yeah. business. Okay. Kind. So, I mean, people might not remember because kind has just like exploded, but kind was in decline uh, when you were brought in. And the big sort of takeaway I got from your blurb talking about kind was um, growth management really, it seems like you, and I guess, and innovation, um, and also digital. So maybe I'll let you tell us <laughs> what, what you did when you got to KIND. What did you see? What did you assess? Where did you prioritize? Um, and what was sort of the big takeaway from that? Uh, I mean, KIND, opinion of one, but I think is the most beautiful brand in food. Mm-hmm. And Daniel is probably the best founder, you know, in, in our, mm-hmm. you know, generation. But, you know, growth is never a straight line. And, you know, I think Kind is a great example of that. You know, 
so it's a successful grant. And, and what happened there was simply put, we had a, you know, getting great distribution, but the distribution was growing two or three times faster than the household penetration. Mm-hmm. And, and that's never, so just to clear that up for people listening, it, it's kind of the, when you're going too wide, but you're not going deep enough, it's, um, the sales might be there, but that's not a good indicator of sort of like the the sustainability or like the, the deep connection uh, to consumers of the business. And, and for emerging brands, it can be very tempting to take, you know, that distribution because it changes your top line. Um, but if, you know, the velocities aren't there and people aren't repeat buying, at some point you're going to kind of have a come to Jesus moment where you're not going to be able to grow anymore by expanding and you're not going to have sort of like the velocities that you need to stay. Um, sorry, just to break it down a little bit for sort of earlier stage founders. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, I, like you, just love brands and always take advantage of how collaborative people in the food business are. Mm-hmm. But I reach out to other former head of marketings and realize that, you know, Red Bull went through the same thing. Chobani went through a similar mm-hmm. situation. Sabra, you know, that, that doesn't mean that you're at the end, but it means that you need to pivot. And, and, and you know, I think Kind has such a successful but humble uh, mm-hmm. culture. Uh, you know, what, what gets you into trouble is, is if you don't realize that kind of like what got you here won't get you won't there. Get you there. Kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in the case of Kind, we, they've developed probably, you know, my predecessor was just a field marketing guru. And yeah. he built what I consider was the best field marketing organization in the U.S. The free bars. I remember exactly. walking in Union Square yeah. and getting a free Kind bar. No, incredible team, incredible yeah. culture. But once you accelerate distribution, field marketing is one of the toughest things to scale up because mm-hmm. it requires hiring. It requires opening new markets. It requires buying more Jeeps, you know, and mm-hmm. doing all of these things. So, you know, I give a lot of kudos to to Jessica, the head of digital at Kind. I think, you know, probably one of the greatest hires I've ever mm-hmm. made. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she came in and, and I think, you know, and, and the rest of the team, you know, like figuring out who was the kind consumer, what was the right positioning. We took advantage on the fact that kind compared to the other brands only has five grams of sugar. Mm-hmm. And some of kind's competitors have, you know, 20, 25 grams of sugar. So we created this campaign called Be Kind to Yourself. Mm-hmm. That is very low sugar oriented. You know, high sugar is great if you're going to run an ultra marathon, but it's not the best if you're going to be stuck on a plane from L.A. to New York City. Right. 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 So, and, and, you know, bring it up. You know, I learned a lot about digital and performance marketing from from that great digital team at Kind. And, you know, that pivot from field marketing, you know, into digital mm-hmm. and, and, you know, from that insight, again, once you get it communicated, came the insight of kind minis in innovation, came yeah. the insight of moving kind to multi-packs, yeah. which, which achieve a ton of growth. So, so again, you know, it's like 
that insight, but spreading it to the organization and and being open that that great ideas comes from everywhere. Yeah. No. Amazing. Okay. And for our last couple of minutes, Cholula. Um, when you went to Cholula, they were behind Sriracha and Tabasco. Um, they are no longer. So if you're the number two in the hot sauce, I hate to ask this, but who's number one? Oh, it's Frank's. Really? Yes, Frank's. I mean, you know, the the, the team at Frank's has just wow. done a tremendous uh, job growing that brand. It's It's one of those... You know, beautiful brands that probably doesn't get the praise that it deserves. No. Yeah. It, yeah. Not yeah. only they are the number one, but I think, you know, they are like almost two X over oh, wow. number two, number wow. three, and number four. So, um, but, you know, I just picture you in the little Cholula car, <laughs> you know, <laughs> driving past Sriracha, like vroom, vroom, driving past Tabasco. Um, and I guess, I guess, you know, m- my big question is like, were you were you building it in a way where you were positioning it to sell to McCormick? Like, were you getting it ready for acquisition? Were there steps that you were taking kind of to become a great acquisition target? Um, or was that just a, a happy benefit? No, there were. Like, uh, you know, it was maybe unfair the team that we had in Cholula because everybody from our CEO to our CFO, our head of sales, our head of ops, everybody came from the from successful private equity exit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, kind of all knew you know what the game plan was. And and I learned a lot from Mora, our CEO, on uh, on how to think about these things. And and like we said, you know, it's it's a lot more important the things that you don't do because then that diminishes the, the options that you have at exit. But at the same time, you know, you you have to put the company in a position that you are a beautiful ground, that all the IP is protected, that, you know, you're the fastest growing brand in the category, the highest gaining of share, you know, the highest upside in distribution and Mm-hmm. Most of the times, those things don't go against each other. I would say 80 or 90% of the time, if you have all of those things, you become a great target. Mm-hmm. But a few times, 10, 15% of their time, they are adults. And just mm-hmm. to be able to have that tough conversation and make that decision and pivot and never talk about it again, right. I think, you know, was, was one of the reasons we were able to, to have such a successful and prompt exit that I think over deliver on all of our expectations. Yeah, no, I mean, and it was like a eight times sales multiple or something crazy. I don't know, obviously exactly, but a little higher than that. But. A little higher than that, which, you know, as a condiment person over here, I'm like, there's something good that goes in my deck. Um, <laughs> so um, I think we're out of time. I know you have to run and um, I have 30 more questions, but I think we did a pretty good job getting through all of the different steps and I took copious notes. Um, Miguel, thank you so much for coming on today. This was an amazing way to start the year. Ali, thank you so much for having me and looking forward to this season. Yes. Um, and new year, new engineer. 
Um, get it? It rhymes. Amanda, uh, you have been the engineer on the show in the past, but now you are our dedicated engineer every Monday. So everyone welcome Amanda. Um, and thank you for getting us all set up today. Um, everyone who's been sending me notes over the winter break, um, I really appreciate it. It's fun. You know, you make this thing and you put it out there and you hope that people listen and that they learn. And that's, I just want to share my resources and share whatever I'm learning along the way. And Miguel getting to speak to someone like you was such amazing insight and experience. I'm just so grateful that, you know, the thousands of people that get to hear you also get to, uh, get to benefit from it. So thank you guys all for listening. Happy new year. And, um, I'll be back next week with another episode of in the sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.